Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy weekly podcast. Today we're going to talk about hydrogen in the cement industry. We're going to talk a little bit about Kazakhstan and how it wants to hijack hydrogen um, development. And we're going to look at um, heat pumps and their opportunity in, especially in Western Europe, and a new one that's come from Vattenfall, which can replace a boiler. And we're going to do that with me, Peter White, and with our chief hydrogen analyst, Harry Morgan. Hi, Peter. And our solar specialist, Andres Montanar. Hello. And with Simon Thompson. Hello. Okay. Um, So, Harry, the first story we're kicking off with is one that you've written about how clean cement is a bit of a problem, but hydrogen can give us a head start there. Yeah, it's all part of our hydrogen forecast that's um, coming out next week. And it's it's very much about the the huge surge of green hydrogen demand that we're going to see from the cement industry through its decarbonisation process, largely within the actual the heat requirements to actually produce clinker which is used to make cement but it's also about how hydrogen alone can't really bring cement down to this net zero industry that we're going to need by 2050 and how actually it does provide a very small window for the the people who have been investing in carbon capture technologies to actually to build a business that's not just predicated on oil and gas so i think really the the way to look at it is that incremental advances in efficiency that we've been seeing within the cement industry as we've seen within steel as we've seen within the automotive industry to a certain extent just simply aren't going to be the solution to actually putting us on this net zero pathway and we're seeing some really promising pilot projects at the moment largely in the uk actually for the uh, use of hydrogen within the kilns to produce clinker but then i think piece you've written about this more than me but the actual the emissions you get from the cement Post oh, it's a chemical reaction. In this chemical reaction, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 you're, you're splitting calcium carbonate into CO2 and calcium oxide. The CO2 is, is a hard stream, and 63.5% of the CO2 from making cement is from that chemical reaction. So the, the other 36.5% is from the provision of heat. So, yeah, the hydrogen can, um, can take away... A big chunk of um, of the uh, CO2 by replacing coal in the process, but somebody's got to take the CO2 that comes straight off that reaction and change the way the process is engineered so that it's a pure CO2 stream. Then solidify it and store it. At the moment, do you know of anybody's actually doing that, Harry? In terms of capturing CO2, uh, no, we've really not seen anyone achieve it. And, and, and certainly the, the pilot projects we've seen within carbon capture so far have been really limited in terms of their success. We're seeing a lot of other projects in terms of reducing concrete demand and, and reducing cement demand. But I think we can be fairly certain looking at industrial development going forward and especially in sort of developing countries that there will be this continued demand for cement. There's initiatives like Earth Friendly Concrete from companies like Wagner's, which are, are trying to use sort of more uh, different binders within concrete to actually reduce the amount of cement used. Uh, but again, I think the, gem- the general consensus is, is that demand for cement will stay flat or will continue to rise. I think and- we get we meet this whole thing all the time in rene- renewables is people say, oh, well, let's do without something. And the thing is, cement, when you're industrialising a country, and obviously this is most important at the moment in China, but then the rest of Asia, Pacific, when you're industrialising a country, you've got to build stuff and you've got to build a lot of stuff and you can't 
to say, oh, we'll bypass cement. It doesn't work. We have to look at the process and find a way of doing it without creating CO2. It's as simple as that. And what you're saying is the world has to, but what you haven't come across is anyone who's taken this project on. And yet this is probably the easiest carbon capture project there is. You know, this is a, a, a chemical reaction which creates two substances, one of which you're going to use and the other which you can just, you want to throw away. It, sh- it shouldn't be a blue gas where there are lots of things in the gas and you've got to take out the, the one thing that's going to pollute. Or you've got to take out four or five things with four or five different chemical reactions. This is should be the most straightforward. Absolutely. I think one thing that I also want to point out is that we've seen this week is we've seen quite a large deal signed in the e-methanol space. So Orsted actually taking a big chunk of, of a project in Sweden. And, and this project, what it's going to, what it's aiming to do is create green hydrogen in one hand, and then it's also going to capture CO2 from a neighbouring industrial plant on another. And it's going to combine the two to create e-methanol as a green fuel. I think that really, especially if you're going to, if you're going to have these industrial complexes where you've got cement, cement making and maybe you've got a nearby production of methanol, that's where suddenly you can you can make the whole thing sustainable. I think making these green hubs of industry is where we're going to see this activity. I think it would be great to see someone try and integrate the cement industry with uh, with this methanol industry or with the production of ammonia. Um, it's just simply something where you're actually capturing the CO2 and there's a need for it. It's it will be something we see in two years, I think, three the years. Problem is, the problem, so, so the, the news this week then is really uh, is really that you've completed the hydrogen report and that green hydrogen is definitely the best the most advantageous way of uh, improving cement but they still have this carbon capture problem and you're just highlighting that in the story that no one's really tried to address and and you think we've got to move where we make cement to a hydrogen hub uh, yes, potentially. And I think that's something that we'll definitely see. I think the, the main thing to note is that, yeah, hydrogen is going to be used and it's going to take, but it's only going to be used to take over from fossil fuel consumption. And then I think it's sort of juxtaposed to the fact that there is going to be this need for carbon capture that the oil and gas industry have been banging on about for so many years, but it's actually not going to be used to keep oil and gas alive. So I think if you're developing carbon capture, you need to start looking at where you can get investment outside of the oil and gas industry because i think that really is the only future for carbon capture yeah i mean i've 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 definitely you know when the chemical reaction that is this vital to the development of industrialized nations is throwing out co2 it's that is the only answer and so people will accept i think a small increase in cost uh, of um, creating cement eventually but um, uh, if we can eliminate the CO2. But the, the, the reluctance for anyone to address this, I mean, everybody's, last 20 years, we've spent billions of both public and private money trying to, mostly public, trying to chase down blue gases from coal plants. And we've, we've failed. And you list a few of the failures in this, in this article. Are there any carbon taxes or inducements to either encourage green cement or, you know, discourage current practices? So within carbon capture schemes, and I think it's it's definitely not unanimous across the world whether or not cement is included. Industry broadly is included within the EU's ETS, but it's certainly not within China's carbon, cap, uh, carbon tax system. 
I think as we move towards 2030, I think there's not going to be the scope of all of these carbon pricing systems is going to increase and, it, and there's no way that cement is not going to be embroiled within that. And I think as soon as you've got that that negative financial push really away from fossil fuels, I think that's when the acceleration towards green technology has to start. I think the reason the cement industry hasn't moved on is because they've assumed that it it can't, which it absolutely can, and there's not really been an incentive to move away. So I think that's something that as soon as yet there's they're being punished for the emissions they're making. And if there's any incentive to actually reduce the emissions, then that's where suddenly um, transition will happen mm. at a much faster rate than people expect. And it will be a matter of year, like so it will suddenly switch. So currently the cement industry is marking its own homework. Exactly. And I think there's a lot of creative accounting ways of saying that, oh, yeah, we're making these uh, incremental efficiencies. So this is a greener cement than the last generation of cement when realistically it might be a, a saving of two to three percent i think it's about eight percent overall um these these savings have made over the past sort of 10 years or so so I, i'm curious because we always um trash the idea of ccus for coal plants but i got the impression that ccus actually is useful for cement as an as a minor part of the transition it's not that CCUS is useful as such, it's that CCUS might, is likely to be the only option of uh, eliminating these emissions from the chemical reaction. I think we can, we can, we can take away the, the emissions from the coal, um, which is exactly what you want. And that's an e a really easy win for the cement industry is just to get rid of the coal, get rid of the gas they're using in the kilns. Then you've got this, this chemical reaction problem that you've got going on. And there are ways around there are ways to reduce that and actually to reduce the amount of chemical reaction you need by using sort of uh, different adhesives within cement and, and then obviously within concrete but i think in terms of actually eliminating those uh, emissions from that chemical reaction it's very difficult to see a way around using carbon capture and Therese, you've been writing the new country by country profile from rethink energy and this week you wrote about Kazakhstan. I did, and I, and I had far too much fun talking about the uh, the recent near coup. I better I better control myself and not talk about it too much right now. So I'll just get it out of the way quickly. Just the um, energy, please. Oh really? <laughs> well, in in the end, I think Kazakhstan's still going to be stable. It's still going to be open to Western finance, despite the defeat of the coup being a win for Russia. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. So it, it's still open for business for, for, from both sides, I think. And so, so we first heard about Kazakhstan, I think, from, from that time where when Svevind a few months back announced this 45 gigawatt renewable with 30 gigawatts of electrolyzer capacity hydrogen complex that it's planning. And apparently that will begin construction in 2024. And if you'd asked me about that uh, before this article and before that announcement, I would have just thought, well, Kazakhstan is just some Central Asian country. It's probably poor. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's irrelevant. But actually, it has 20% of its economy is coming from oil. So they have a lot of easy money. In terms of openness to, to business, it's up there with a southern or eastern European country like Bulgaria and Cyprus. So it's actually quite open. Uh, in terms of trade routes, it's far from the sea, but it's right between Europe and China. And it has plenty of railways for renewables. It has plenty of room for wind and solar. Um, I still find it a bit puzzling that they're building hydrogen there right next to Russia, quite far from Europe, not too far from China, China though. But uh, yeah, they're, they're doing, they're going to do that. They signed up to have a 2060 carbon neutrality target on par with China's timescale. 
So it's going to be a big place for business. They have lots of foreign investment coming in. And, the, and so the, the country's the size of Western Europe. Yeah, it's very large. It's definitely the largest of those uh, Central Asian countries. And it, it's it, apparently it still has some heavy industry from the Soviet days. So it's it's not a total, it's not totally backward either. It's wealthier than its Central Asian neighbours. This 2060 net zero target, do you think it's something that will be increased? I mean, 2060 for a country that realistically uses very little energy is something that could be solved solved by a fairly small number of renewables projects. And I think the amount of energy hubs that we're seeing planned for Kazakhstan's deserts, uh, if that's going to go towards any sort of domestic consumption, surely Kazakhstan's going to be reaching that very far before then. If they want to. Yeah, you, you think about how this country has all the room and it's got all the money. It certainly could. I mean, if Vietnam can install 20 gigawatts in a year and a half, Kazakhstan could do far more. Um, and, and what are the renewable resources like in Kazakhstan? Because obviously it's a massive country, but what, what in terms of, sort of wind and solar, where does it really sit in terms of that? It actually varies quite a lot by about um, 50% from the north to the south, because the north of the country is heading towards you know Siberia. I think it's quite similar to a place like um, Hungary, maybe with less seasonal variation, or Bulgaria. It, it is pretty. It's it's got good resources in the south. I think the wind's also good, so it, it's, it's no problem there. And it's got uh, it's got an alternative um, route to import the modules just by railway from China, which is it's significant these days because the, the the shipping lanes, at least right now, are, are clogged up, of course, and it's actually increased the cost of modules just from that. They also have the option of, I think they'll actually do some CSP as well. No one's mentioned it yet, um, but even Iran, as I mentioned in another article this week, has a little CSP project that they're building. And they're right next to they're right next to China. They have all these electrolyzers that they'll want to keep running permanently. I th- they're also looking into doing a bit of nuclear. Takayev, the, the president, has, has said this phrase, which I think some of you will find <laughs> a bit annoying, uh, reliable baseload power. So he wants to build... Uh, some nuclear for, for that reason. Uh, any any other questions? I mean, I, I still, I'm, so, I'm sure I've so asked you. It's interesting hmm. you talked about rail connection to China hmm. because it's landlocked, so it couldn't actually have a ship connection. It's, it's for such a big country, it only has water on one small side and that's a landlocked, and that's one of the, uh, the, the, the two Russian seas, yeah. And so that doesn't really go anywhere either. But, um, you seem convinced that this is a stable government, even though there's virtually been a coup in the last week. Um, so you you seem convinced that th- this isn't going to suddenly cave to Russian aims, because obviously Russia wants to export natural gas. If you're going to make a load of hydrogen and send it to the same people that Russia is exporting natural gas to, hmm. um, that's going to get in ne- the way of of gas revenues for Russia, which we know are very, very important. So you can imagine that the the, um, the Russians won't be as sympathetic next time there's a coup and might not help out. Well, it's um, Kazakhstan is it's got it, it's a Muslim country where, where the nationalist sentiment is quite anti-Russian on the part of the nationalist uh, minded people. So there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, but that's even less reason for Russia to help out. If if most of the people are anti-Russian, why would they help out? Well, 
uh, it's very important for China and Russia to have this large country with all these railway connections that's right between them be somewhere that allows them to trade through it. And sure, they can invade and, and or they can not help them against a coup. Uh, but then maybe you'll have Islamists running around blowing things up. And there's Kazakhs in Xinjiang as well. And maybe they'd get there. So I think China and Russia have got what they wanted, which is it's not openly hostile to us and it's not turning into a basket case with railway lines being blown up. Um, so, so, but they're thinking of it as a buffer state. Yeah. Uh, and, and the thing is, they don't want to piss off those potential uh, radical nationalists. So they allow them uh, to do some anti-Russian things like handing o- over all the oil and gas extraction to American companies like they have been doing. Uh, they adopt it. They abandon some of their legal systems uh, heritage from the Soviet era in favor of uh, Anglophone style legal systems. Uh, one of the recent appointments by Takayev has been this guy I mentioned in the article who is quite anti-Russian. There's a lot of Russians living in parts of Kazakhstan and he doesn't he wants the use of the Russian language to be restricted. And I think Vladimir Putin is actually going to look at all of this and say, well, it's fair enough, because if you don't give some concessions to internal nationalist Kazakh sentiment, then they will start fighting. And that's just a, too much of a nuisance. Right. So, Getting back to the energy hmm. part of it, um, yeah, so, it, this is 40 or 50 gigawatts of uh, uh, electrolyzer power at some stage in the future. That's the plan. Um, yeah, by 2030, they, they want it to be. Harry, um, how are you going to ship that amount of hydrogen somewhere useful? Do you have to turn it into ammonia or is it you're going to have to compress it? Because we know that the economics of shipping it in the same way as LNG around the world are, are not the same. It's far more expensive. That's a great question. In terms of hydrogen distribution around the world, there's going to be so many different forms, as you mentioned, turning it into ammonia. I think anywhere you're, anywhere you're shipping it, right, is going to be turning it into ammonia and actually physically put it in an, a, a ship that's powered by ammonia and ship it across. So if Australia to Singapore. And you think that's an agreed thing now, that most scientists, uh, most, most of the companies realise that that's how you ship it? I think as as long as you're shipping it, I think generally people are, th- are thinking ammonia. I think if liquefied hydrogen suddenly has a big win, then that's when that could be disrupted. But obviously, you then got temperature requirements that people don't really know you've yet. You've got insane not... temperature requirements. Exactly, and, and you've got sure... insane energy requirements to achieve those temperatures. Yes, exactly. So it, it, the, the debate will be whether or not the energy loss you get when you convert it into ammonia is going to be were is going to be sort of beneficial to the energy loss from actually cooling hydrogen down to I think it's minus 270 something degrees and I think it, I'm not sure if it's exactly that amount but when but surely this is better off as a pipeline uh, process yeah so that's exactly what I was about to say so in terms of Kazakhstan um, you're, it's quite unique in the sense that it's landlocked um, it's quite unique in the sense that the markets where it will be looking to export its hydrogen to largely Europe and Western Europe are well... That does include China as well, actually. Yeah, so China, I'll go on to in a second, but in, Sorry. In, ter- in terms of Western Europe, you'll be you'll have a lot of potential for, for pipeline, um, and then the pipeline will then obviously transport the hydrogen around Europe. In terms of China, it's, it's very different. I mean, you've got obviously the Belt and Road Initiative will have some parts to play in Kazakhstan's development, and that could see some pipelines developed. I think, realistically, it will be a bit of a combination of both. I think it, you'll see ammonia transported by truck on roads and i think you'll see some sort of pipeline as well i don't imagine that there'll be um i can't think of what the alternatives are off the top of my head now um i, I can't imagine that it'll be sort of rail transported um 
I can't imagine that it would be a case. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine that would be a case of transporting the electricity into China where hydrogen would be produced. I think it would be produced in Kazakhstan, and I think it will then be an open market of who's going to buy it. Both of these items, really, that we've talked about so far, I think, put me in mind of how important the carbon border taxes are, because a place like Kazakhstan has got 70% of its grid energy is is created by coal. It wants to make a lovely commercial exercise out of exporting hydrogen, but it's not planning to be clean energy internally until 2060. So there's a kind of pressure there that um, uh, that you need to apply because they could turn that they could certainly turn coal into bloody hydrogen and try and export it if this is an export play. And so we have to be very careful dealing with countries like Kazakhstan and obviously China has to because if it uses uh, tainted uh, hydrogen supply and then produces something else which it wants to ship somewhere else in the world like Europe, that that, that supply chain is going to be um, followed back to its source and it's going to be tainted and, and therefore uh, attract a carbon border tax. And I just, it, the same goes back to the previous story about about uh, cement. If, if you're going to export cement from A to B, you better be sure that it hasn't taken, it hasn't been produced with a lot of carbon in it. And why is because the rich countries, America, hopefully, but certainly Europe, are going to have a carbon border tax and that acts as the global policing option for making uh, the cement industry uh, actually take it seriously and try and get rid of CO2. So again, both of these and the whole hydrogen thing really just reminds me of how important it is that we see through a carbon border tax. Yeah, and I think there were some really positive steps made uh, at COP26 in terms of actually creating that and there are agreements in place to actually start putting value on the carbon credits and sort of the transfer of carbon credits between countries. Now, when we talk about the last story that we're going to talk about this week, I know it's been credited to Vattenfall, uh, but it is actually a very small subsidiary of theirs um, called Feenstra in uh, in in Holland, uh, or rather the um, the Netherlands. And it's it's finally come up with something I would have thought was would have been should have been happened ten years ago, which is a heat pump which can produce um, temperatures between 65 and 80 degrees, so that you can use it for both water supply uh, and for all of a house uh, houses heating, rather than the uh, low power heat pumps which tend to be imported from parts of Asia, which are really designed as air conditioners, which occasionally have a dual function, i.e. they can heat. And I just don't, I, I was just shocked when this came out, that, that this is going to be, apparently, we haven't got a price on it, but it's going to be cheap enough to be viable. And it, more importantly, is it can fit in the space that your boiler fits in. And you can just drop this heat pump into your uh, home Obviously, there would be an external element to 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 it as well, where your boiler is, and you can push the water that it it heats through the radiators in the same way that a gas boiler does today. Uh, we we've we've been talking about hydrogen boilers for Christ's sake for a, a while. It makes perfect sense if you can economically produce an electric boiler that relies on on a heat pump, which which is 
as you say, is external. What, why, why hasn't anyone done this before? I don't think it's that difficult. Where is it going to be rolled out? Vattenfall is in many countries in Europe. It's not, again, it's a Vattenfall subsidiary. This oh, is a okay, du- okay, Dutch right, subsidiary right, okay, okay. called Feenstra. Right, it's okay. going to initially be rolled out in Holland, okay. in the Netherlands. Um, it's going to be available for export to the UK shortly after. Uh, I mean, the first thing I thought was, this is a typically UK story. We've got the UK element here, British government, that, that's made up of 99% uh, politics students uh, and not one science degree to rub together between any of them. And they look at a problem like, oh, how are we going to heat the UK? Oh, it's, you know, we're told heat pumps, but maybe hydrogen. And they sit there and vacillate between these two and make no make no decisions. When very clearly... Heat pumps have been around for a long time. Why wouldn't they go to one of their large industrials, uh, let's say Dyson or somebody, and say, go and make us an efficient heat pump that fits into where the boiler lives in most homes? Could you do that, please? Uh, Or or even go to Worcester Bosch, who make most of the uh, boilers, and say, uh, well, we're going to be stripping out all of your boilers from our country soon. So could you please make one that's driven by a heat pump? And electricity not by gas why hasn't that been done by one of the and we'll promise you 20 million sales you know because we, we will coordinate the purchase of these why has nobody done that before it's not a massive technical decision to make when you talk to somebody in the in say british gas you talk to an engineer british gas you say oh can i buy a heat pump instead they say oh they, they don't work if you listen to the national news you see all the newspapers go well heat pumps don't work and yet here we are with heat pumps that definitely do work and they can fit in the space of a conventional boiler and plumbers can be trained on them within two years we could be rolling this out as a national campaign overnight and uh, uh, this story was picked up by every uh, renewable energy uh, publication in the last three or four days because they're all going "Well, well why hasn't this happened before So that's the Rethink Energy podcast for today. Uh, You can read the rest of the issue on our website. And another thing that happened this week that was quite interesting was a big surge of investment into non-lithium energy storage types, non-lithium batteries, as well as some compressed air. 